2: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a huge amount to offer the modern world. Over 13 million people in the UK now live below the poverty line, with an enormous rise in the number of people relying on food banks just to eat. So what role has the government's austerity cuts, and in particular, their attack on the welfare state played in this? I'm Alison McGovern and I'll be discussing that difficult question with Progress Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd and Gary Lemon, Director of Policy, External Affairs and Research at the Trussell Trust. Today's subject is about food poverty, not the most cheerful of subjects, and in fact, something that on the Progressive Britain podcast we've been covering for quite a while, our second ever podcast was my colleague Catherine McKinnell, MP, talking about the universal credit rollout and the problems it was causing. And unfortunately, the government failed to listen to her. So today we have Gary Lemon from the Trussell Trust to talk to us about food poverty, Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Could you just tell us a little bit about food poverty specifically and, you know, why is that different from just poverty in general? You know, the Trussell Trust have been going for for a little while now trying to tackle this issue. Tell us what you've learned from trying to deal with it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, I I actually personally dislike the term food poverty. I think that really food poverty is just um, another symptom of poverty, perhaps to uh, give a little bit of background about the Trussell Trust and the sort of scale that we're working at at the moment. So we have about 429 uh, food banks right across the UK in all four nations. Um, And last financial year, we uh, distributed 1.3 million uh, food supplies to people in crisis.
2: So that's 1.3 million individual kind of packages, if you like.
3: It's it's a measure of volume of food. So it's one supply per person, but uh, some people come back more than once, although yeah. not as many as you'd think. It's, yeah. Our average is still less than two per person. Per year? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're certainly talking about hundreds of thousands of men, women and children each year. And uh, that was actually a, a 13% increase in demand on the year before. Really? Yeah. I, I think it's important to say as well, that I think about the model is that people can't just come to um, a trust or trust food bank and um, ask for food. Uh, they have to be referred by um, an expert. So that might be like a local authority, could be an MP surgery, GP surgery, very often a citizen's advice. So we know that everybody who's coming to a, a, a trust or trust food bag is in genuine financial need and is experiencing poverty, be that food poverty, be that, uh, you know, we hear, we hear about sanitary po- poverty, so people who are unable to afford like sanitary products, toiletries, winter clothes, the whole lot.
2: Yeah, and I would say from... The- The experience of my office as well, every time somebody comes in and they've got a problem and they're not able to feed themselves in whatever way, we always ask what's behind it? How can we help? You know, who can we call on your behalf to get to the root of this problem? And presumably all the other experts do similarly.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's really, really important that um, people... Get all the help that is available to them out there. So, uh, one of the things that we try to do in our food banks is is not just simply give out food in ever increasing numbers to people. We we always try to signpost people to people other organisations who can help. So, you know, um, people like Citizens Advice, for example, do a fantastic job. They're able to make sure that people can maximise the amount of benefits that they've got.
2: So, to come on to benefits, let's get to the heart of this matter. What? Change in the benefit system is it that has exacerbated this problem, such that you're getting year on year rises of the order of thirteen um, can percent?
3: I, can I go back a bit yeah. and, and kind of work up to where we are today? Because uh, it, this is um a kind of a story which has been going on for for a, a very long time. I won't go as far back as kind of beverage and the five giants, and you know the whole reason why we we came up with a, a welfare system in the first place. But something that's changed in the last sort of since the nineties, actually. Um, I read um, a really interesting paper by a uh, Dr. Tom O'Grady from UCL, and what he's been doing is he's been looking at um, records of Hansard, analysing those. So those—that's essentially everything that is said in, in both houses of Parliament. And what he noticed was um, a, a change in, in language from politicians, um, uh, particularly Labour politicians. Actually, um, it's something which I think Tory politicians have have been more traditionally uh, talking about, which is. There used to be this, this principle that in this country, there should be a universal uh, lower living standard, which nobody should fall below. But what we saw in the 90s was a change in rhetoric, particularly from politicians, where we began to talk about people uh, needing to deserve their benefits, needing to uh, be split into those who deserved it and those who didn't.
2: Kind of going back to a sort of Victorian idea of deserving and non-deserving poor. Yes. Like the kind of, on the one hand, there'd be like the fallen, and on the other hand, there'd be the feckless, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's very, bad. Like I would never use that language to be clear. No, no, and no, I would
3: never accuse you of doing that. But, so. but there
2: was that kind of, that idea of a split that somehow crept back into our politics, is what you're saying.
3: Absolutely. And, and what this um, analysis um, said was that um, this change in rhetoric from politicians began to change the national narrative on on benefits and on poverty. And if you look at something like the British Social Attitude Survey, which is this amazing annual survey which looks at British attitudes and all sorts of things, you'll see from the 90s, there was this quite constant drop-off in public support for the benefit system. So, you know, you ask questions like, uh, what percentage of people do you think are cheating the benefit system? And we saw that that go up and up and up until we reached 2010, when British support for the benefit system reached a real nadir. Mm Um, And obviously that was um, at the same point as we saw the coalition government come in and we saw that first emergency budget in 2010, uh, where we saw the first of uh, tens of billions of pounds taken out of the welfare system. And I think the the reason I wanted to go back to that sort of change in rhetoric is because that had widespread public support. Um, At the time I was um, working as a press officer for a homelessness charity. You know, I wrote the press release, which uh, sort of pretended the doom that we were about to see in the future. And really, it was a bit like shouting into the wind. It it had such wide support that people said, well, you know, we've we've had the financial crash. Uh, We need to uh, tighten our belts. It seems completely logical. But unfortunately, fast forward to 2018, fast forward to today, and we are now beginning to really see the the results of these tens of billions of pounds taken out of the welfare safety net.
1: So I suppose one of the things that you're saying there is that there was almost this kind of perfect storm, right? So you had uh kind of pre the 90s i mean you had the kind of thatcher government and kind of you know decades of conservatives in, in control who we know as a party are not particularly uh polite often when it comes to people that are on benefits and the kind of rhetoric that sits around that and obviously we know then obviously in between the 90s and 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 kind of 2010 for for a large chunk of that we obviously had a labor government that did a lot to lift children out of poverty. But you're saying one of the things that we didn't do was tackle the kind of language around that and the kind of public perception of that. Because obviously there was a lot that we did as a government to be able to to alleviate lots of those pressures. But one of the things, obviously from what I'm kind of getting is that what we didn't do was tackle that public perception enough in terms of that. Cut to 2010, you then get a conservative government back in hell bent on the ideological change and and therefore having the political will to do it. Is that the kind of situation that you're... Yeah. Is that what you think the problem was?
3: Yeah, I don't want to be too harsh on labour. I think that those uh, achievements, which which you talk about in the 90s, are absolutely undeniable. And, mm. uh, you know, um, again, you know, uh, back then I was working for a homelessness charity. I was uh, talking to outreach teams in London and we were talking about eliminating rough sleeping in the capital. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we had like the last 56 people with complex needs and we were beginning to... Uh, work out exactly what it is that we could do to tackle those issues. And, you know, I think that um, uh, labour policies back then were were a huge part of that. But yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of the problems which we face today are underpinned by this, the, the public attitude towards poverty and towards benefits. There's actually some really interesting work, which has been done by the Joseph Franchard Foundation in, in collaboration with an organisation called Frameworks from the US, where they've, it sounds sinister, but they've kind of experimented on, on 30,000 British people uh, trying to understand their attitude towards poverty and towards benefits. And what they found is that, yes, the, the the British public has got a strong sense of fairness. And because of this rhetoric, that sense of fairness has kind of been turned away from this we are a society which believes in a minimum standard for everyone and against people who are in poverty. Because, uh, you know, I find it all the time, you know, I speak to people who I think are perfectly reasonable. And, uh, you know, I'm always banging on about benefits I'm very boring at parties. But... Um, <laughs> even perfect reasonable people you'd be great at my parties going <laughs> I'll be honest thank you Is um you, you know you'll start having this reasonable conversation but then you know they'll start talking about well but then you know we've got Mrs Miggins who lives opposite and I I'm not sure if she works you know she seems to have a large television you know these are really prevalent unhelpful attitudes and and, and the trouble with that is that um, rather than us taking a step back because a society as a government, you know as politicians, and having a look at the systemic reasons why people are ending up in poverty, we focus on the individual.
2: And just to come back to this systemic reasons why people are in poverty, I think whilst uh, Osborne and Cameron were making their welfare cuts, one of their arguments was, well, the root cause of poverty isn't a lack of money. The root cause of poverty is like low educational achievement. Or being part of a troubled family, if remember that rhetoric, yeah. and you know maybe addiction in the family. Um, I feel as though that we've been in this um, battle about what poverty really is for some time now. Is it a combination of all these other factors that mean that you you find it difficult to hold on to money and spend it wisely, or is it that? you just don't have enough money to have the decent things that most people would expect as a basic minimum in life. yeah. And therefore you end up having problems of other descriptions. And I tend to be one of those politicians, I suppose, on the left and, and a progressive that thinks that the root cause of poverty is not enough money. Hmm. Um, and therefore the answer to, to not enough money is the welfare state, the idea of the basic floor that uh, everybody should stand on, as you mentioned before. Does the Trussell Trust have any evidence about that? Like, do you, What do you think your kind of experience as, a, as an organisation demonstrates to us about what we should... What's the answer? How do we solve poverty?
3: Um, that's something we'll work on. It's a big question. But we, we have been gathering quite a lot of evidence. So probably the most important piece of research that we've done in recent years, it's, it was written up by an academic, so it got, hasn't got the snappiest title. It's called um, Food Insecurity, Disability and Poverty.
2: You uh, can the, give us a link and we'll I'll put, send us the, through the link and we'll put the link on the podcast Stary, so it, the
3: people. The most important piece of research, I can't remember the title at the moment. But,
2: um, <laughs> but academics are academics, it's nothing you can do they about just, long they, just, they are who they are.
0: Yeah.
3: Exactly, we can't change them. But it, it is an absolutely fantastic uh-huh. piece of research. And, and, and um, what it does is that in order for us to be able to understand some of the systemic reasons why people end up in food banks, we asked uh, about 500 households about what their circumstances were and then tried to draw conclusions from that. So what we found was that about 80% of households who um, were referred to our food banks uh, were meant to be supported by working age benefits. Uh, wow. about, about 15% were in some form of work, um, although often uh, very insecure, part-time, low-paid, um, etc. We found that in the months before a household is referred to a food bank, the average household income is just three hundred and nineteen pounds. Wow! So, um, you know, if, if your listeners can uh, try imagining running their household uh, you're on that little money, it's it's no wonder that there's real real poverty there.
2: Yeah, and um, like and like average weekly wages would be like closer to five hundred pounds. Indeed. So, yeah. like that's that's yeah. I mean, that's about right. Like. 60% of mm. median income. So this is people for whom they're not getting close to what is about the average <laughs> wages in Britain.
3: Yeah, just to keep your heads above water. Um, and I suppose it's hardly uh, surprising that um, because people are on such little money... The world, joy
1: yeah. of filming these things in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's a <laughs> very
3: atmospheric. Um, the um, Because these incomes were so low, we, were, we also asked people questions about, you know, what what they could and couldn't afford in the year before they came to our food bank. So we found that fully half of people had um, gone without uh, winter clothes, half had gone without heating or lighting at times, half had gone up without toiletries. Uh, We we found that 80% were um, severely food insecure. So this is an international measure of food insecurity, uh, whereby we know that people have gone multiple days Missing multiple meals, essentially. So, real hunger. And probably the final thing to say, which came out of that report, which was really shocking, was um, fully half of the households who were referred to Trust Trust food banks had someone in them with, with um, a disability and three quarters with an illness. Um, single parents were massively overrepresented. So,
2: so, it's really interesting, Gary, because basically, when I hear you say that, disability, single parenthood, illness, Beverage is trying to deal with these things. Yeah. So we're essentially back where we were in the 40s, with the the five giants are kind of back there staring us at us in the face. And the drivers of the beverage system uh, to tackle these things, that's where we should be now, right? We should be saying there are extra costs if you have kids, there are extra costs if you get sick, and that idea of smoothing your income that's what the welfare state is for. And so the argument essentially, basically what we're saying is, is the same.
3: Yeah, it, it's it's not just about the welfare state, obviously. I mean, uh, the other side of the equation is work, um, you know, decent work that pays with decent hours. Um, the, uh, the current government is rightly proud of the fact that it's gotten so many people into work and we've got these, uh, you know, historic low levels of unemployment. But at the same time, if you look at levels of wages we've had the the longest most severe stagnation in income since i think i heard the napoleonic wars you've got more and more people dropping off the bottom and and struggling to get by so um yes work that pays a welfare state that catches everybody
1: and obviously you know a conservative party conference Theresa may announced that austerity is over which you know well, I think we're all pretty dubious about the, in terms of the realities of this, but obviously that's had a huge impact, you were saying, in terms of 2010 onwards, in terms yeah. of the austerity agenda and the impact that's had. So, And the clock is ticking. I mean, basically it's uh, now two weeks exactly
2: to the budget. Mm. So we are on the rundown now. And I can only say that given the severity of this, that all MPs are facing, This will be the subject in the news in Parliament every day for the next two weeks until Philip Hammond gets up and says that £12 billion of welfare cuts is done. It's over. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. And unless that happens, we will keep going because people in Britain, they can't be asked to deal with this anymore. Yeah.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: Obviously, one of the things that's been in the headlines, we spoke about it very briefly at the beginning of the podcast in terms of universal credit, and the changes in benefits in terms of, and that's happening. And obviously, one of the things you're saying is one of the biggest groups of people that are doing that, people that are on in work benefits at the moment, kind of currently. So what would you say is the kind of impact that universal credit and the rollout of that's having? And, and what's the kind of, you know, why is it having such an enormous impact on people?
3: Yeah, so we've kind of talked about the bigger picture, but I think it is really important to to home in on what is for us now the most pressing concern in terms of um, people ending up in poverty and needing food banks, and that is the rollout of universal credit. So um, it started being rolled out sort of 2016 time, and um, our food bank managers began getting in touch with us in, in central office saying, look, this is um, a disaster for people. We're seeing a big increase in demand. We're seeing issues with people during the what it was then, a six-week wait. So um, we, uh, again, did some research where we began asking people who were supported by universal credit what their issues were. And we looked at some of the numbers as well. So I already mentioned that um, we had seen a 13 percent increase in demand across the board last year. What we found when we looked into it, though, was that in food banks, which had seen universal credit roll out for a a year, that increase was 52 percent. So it's kind of a really
1: horrifying.
3: yeah, real sort of statistically significant in, in, increase in demand where universal credit was rolling out. And um, so um, we were asking uh, questions of 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 people uh, in terms of you know what what's actually happening here. So um, we found that that initial six week wait, which was uh, shortened to five, was having really immediate and severe consequences for people, you know, as you, as you might well imagine. Um, the way that the old benefits system uh, was often paid was kind of a, much more regularly, often fortnightly. Um, and um, having this is it,
1: right? Like, I'm I live in London, I'm in a you know, a good job, as lots of people consider, right? You know, definitely earn more than the kind of average wage. Mm. I couldn't wait six I couldn't not have money for six weeks, like, I'm not even in that position now, and I'm like, you know. Um, you know, 30 years old and in that situation, I can't even imagine what it would be like, particularly if you've got children or a family or things like that, of the ability to have to to wait for that. It's just not something that most people would be able to do.
3: Yeah, and and yet yeah, that's how it was rolled out. So there were we as an organisation and others made a lot of noise about that. Mm. And um, what we got in response uh, from DWP at the last budget was um, uh, extra money to be put into the system. So uh, some things like housing benefit for some groups would be rolled on during that that wait um and we also saw a big push on advances so that's essentially um a a loan really where you you could you could be lent the money to get you over that first five week wait as it is now um but then the the issue with that is that you have to repay that from every subsequent constantly
1: chasing yourself in terms of
3: yeah exactly and that when universal credit was initially designed of course they weren't like offering people like extra generous payments it was already just there to cover the basics so having money chopped off every month is is causing people to struggle um and, and that's even leaving aside the fact that um even ian duncan smith is is angry about how much money's been taken out of the system you know just yesterday he was uh, talking about how he wants to see 2 billion extra put back into it uh, so we we agree with um, with ids on that one um <laughs>
1: Things you don't often think of. will <laughs> yeah, say. And
3: I know, I know, John Major as well. Um, and um, it's it's not just that weight though. So we're also seeing um, real problems with, frankly, just shocking maladministration. So you you keep hearing stories of lost documents. Of um, I, I spoke to a guy um, on Friday last week, and his wife's name had been entered without the S at, at the start of it, and it had caused them. Uh, through some kind of weird combination of circumstance, to be overpaid their universal credit um, every month, which they kept telling people about, and um, they were left with a, a nine thousand pound bill to repay. And those kind of um, issues of uh, as well people who who perhaps might be in work, who might be in low paid work, which was you know always the kind of the central selling point of universal credit that it should always make work pay. We're finding that um, the system is struggling to keep up with uh, fluctuating income, um, and uh, is leaving people uh, constantly being overpaid and underpaid. Which, and and I, and I think that issue really gets to something at the heart of universal credit for me. Which again goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that you know we constantly hear about how universal credit its core principle is to always make work pay, and. What about the other core principle, which is to be able to give support to people who need it? You know, that's that too often seems to have been forgotten during the design and implementation of this benefit.
1: Mm. And the one thing that I'd be really, uh, really curious to know your opinion on is, obviously over the last couple of weeks now, you know, Universal Credit has constantly been in the headlines mm. in terms of how it works. As you say, we've had interventions from the likes of Ian Duncan Smith. Um, we've had John Major come in in terms of saying um, that he agrees with the principle of it and the, the concept of universal credit, and that the core idea of that is a very good thing. However, the fact that they've decimated so much funding from it is obviously is is um, definitely something that he doesn't agree with, and is calling for that to be put back in. And you've also got John McDonnell, who was saying, "Look, you know, we we did we did we did always say that we would want to reform, but now we're at the point now where we think we've just got to kind of not just halt it, but maybe even scrap it." Where would where would the kind of trust will trust sit in terms of something of this benefit? Has it gone too far? Is it actually, you know, is it is it so poorly designed now in terms of not only just the rollout of that, but but the kind of core concept of it that you think it's something that needs totally reworking? Or is it or is it something that just with an injection of cash would be would be better for the people that are on it?
3: Yeah, it's a, a good question and a tricky one. Um, I think not a
1: big one there. For you, I'm sure you'll manage.
3: <laughs> it's. I think one of the, one of the real tragedies about universal credit is that we'll we'll never know uh, whether it w- would have worked as designed because so much money was taken out of it before it ever really had a chance. Yeah. I think if you are going to scrap it, then you'd, you'd better make sure that you've got something really decent in place to replace it. Because my worry would be if it were just thrown in the bin, then. Um, it would be the people who who need support from the benefit system the most who who might suffer so were that to happen then there has to be something in place to replace it i mean the principle of making sure work always pays is is a good one mm. you know i i mean
1: um and the yeah. kind of the idea of centralizing that benefit system so it's you know one one place that you go to to apply for all of those so obviously whereas it used to have to be lots of different pots that you'd have to go to and different yeah. people you'd have to speak to yeah Logically seems like a good one, but as you say, that kind of the delivery of that, and as you say, that other principle of looking after people that actually need it, yeah, you know, and having that safety net of that welfare system properly, obviously just doesn't quite seem to be there. And shocking by a system designed by Tories, really. Who'd, <laughs> who'd have thought that's what they'd come up with?
2: <laughs> I just wanted to ask one thing, Gary, which is really important to listeners of this podcast, yeah. which is that they will, you know, feel as outraged as I do listening to what you've said. Um, if people want to help the Trussell Trust, what is the number one thing that they can do to assist? Because what's what you know, volunteering or donating or whatever, it's not always obvious what the most helpful thing is. Is it literally go on your website now and make a donation? Is it call your local food bank donate your time? Is it just take some food down to the, your local food bank or drop it off at a collection point? which is the number one thing that people should be doing.
3: As things aren't immediately going to get any better, are probably going to get worse. I would ask everybody listening to find out whether a local food bank is. It doesn't matter if it's trust or trust, independent or whatever. They will very often have specific asks about what it is that they need. Find out what it is that they need. Don't just give them beans. Often they've got a bean mountain. Some of them need beans sometimes, but usually not. Cash donations to food banks are obviously um, also really, really helpful. They've got lots of running costs that they need to cover go to the Trussell Trust website as well, trustletrust.org. He says, nearly forgetting that as well. Um, and um, you can find out what you can do to help us to, to volunteer and campaign nationally as well. And we're going to be doing more and more of that in the, in the very near future. So
2: check out what your local food bank needs, number one. A second point is go onto your website, get your debit card out and give you some money.
3: Yes, indeed. Fantastic. Yeah.
2: Right. Well, that is great. We have our marching orders. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Every week, we ask a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. So the question this week, and neither you or I wrote it, did we? Absolutely not. We would we would not lower ourselves to get involved with uh, political <laughs> is, pub quiz. This is all
1: Connor's handiwork. The
2: nineteen sixty four general election took place this very week, fifty four years ago, and like in twenty seventeen, both the Tories and Labour won over twelve million votes. But how many seats were won by parties other than the main two? Oh, do you know? I've, I, I haven't got a clue. But if you know, drop us an email at office at progressonline.org.uk and give us your answer. So we'll be back on Friday. Well, I will be back, but you'll be back, Steph. Oh,
1: but maybe, depends if Conor yeah, likes I'll me on be Friday. Doing, I'll
2: be doing my surgery in the Wirral.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you guys will be
2: back on Friday. And we have been delighted to have Gary joining us today. In the meantime, please give us a rating and leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for listening. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast